the, the, the printed media are always after these cut and dried things like I'm finished with you and, and divorce and um, uh, clash, conflict, split, break, collapse and all those sort of end words which really don't happen in life. Everyone knows in their own families that you can have the worst falling out when, and, and uh, Christmas comes and you have reunions. By the end of Christmas you're in terrible trouble again because you've split. And, but if only the media could somehow uh, complicate issues again instead of always oversimplifying them and point out to people at home, actually look into the camera and say, listen, you know it's not as simple as that, that the Beatles have broken up, because what if they came together again then? So there is no split, as long as there's life, no one splits with anyone. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm Lonnie Pena. With us this week, Sam Wiles. I was just on Sam's uh, show, Paul or Nothing. I guess it showed up as of this airing a couple weeks ago? Yes, a couple of weeks ago by the time this goes out. But yeah, that was a fantastic episode. We covered McCartney's early 80s music video videography. That was great. So the topic that we're coming to this week, since we don't actually get to talk about Let It Be until next year. Officially, right? <laughs> it was 51 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you look at Let It Be, you look at Anthology, you know, we just got through uh, covering the back half of Anthology. The Beatles have a very definite telling of the story. They want you to believe that there was the, the winter of discontent, January 69. Then, oh, they decided to get back together for Abbey Road. And then they just sort of split and they didn't matter to each other anymore. Well, we, we know from facts that's not the case. At least three of the Beatles got back together, right, in January of 70? Yep, they recorded I Me Mine. Yeah, to, uh, although John was, he was gone by then, right? I mean, he left the Beatles by that point. <laughs> During the Let It Be film, you know, they're sitting there talking about, well, are we going to split up? Are we, do we want a divorce or do we want to keep going? Well, apparently, you know, John, uh, you know, af after the interviews that they had in September, their, their meeting that we later found out that the possibility of continuing. 
But something happened on the, between September and December. Something happened. And John was out. The, well, what happened was the Plastic Ono Band, the, right. the live piece in Toronto show, you know, the two meetings, there are two Beatles meetings that we now know about, sort of right after Abbey Road. There's the one that Mark Lewison's been telling us about where they said, oh, well, you know, are we going to go on? Are we going to make another album? The Lennon-McCartney thing is over. We'll split it up uh, four, 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 and one if Ringo wants it. Was that the way it went? Yeah, and, and no, John took control of that meeting. That was John's perspective, right? He, he was the one leading it. Yeah, but there was a change of heart somewhere between because <laughs> over the next yeah, three weeks, yeah, he would know, never, was, never record with with McCartney again after that. Well, other than toot and snore, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a recording. <laughs> uh, we can call it that. Yeah. It's a recording, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, isn't John just a bit manic during this period? I, like, I, 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 I always feel like his mental state at this point's always been downplayed to make the narrative a little cleaner. But uh, has he has he come off heroin at, by this point? Well, I mean, he likes to say that he stopped heroin before he wrote Cold Turkey. November 69, Cold Turkey, which was top, top 20 in, in the UK and got to number 30 in America, I think. Yeah, it, it was, was banned here as well, you know. What they thought th- it was a pro-drug song, you know, it was just a... What was it to you, John? Was it, it was something a, that was very important? Yeah, because, as always, uh, I've always expressed what I've been feeling or thinking at the time, however badly or not, you know, from, being, from early Beatle records on. It got became more conscious later, but so I was just uh, show writing the experience I'd had of withdrawing from heroin, and saying, you know, this is what I thought when I was withdrawing. You know, but also musically it was very uh, interesting. I mean, yeah, Eric Clapton was on that too. And yes, and also we did attempt uh, a few musically advanced, interesting things. In yeah, it. Mark Boland said it was mm. the only new thing that had happened in since the original Beatles when it came out, but I wasn't thinking I'm going to make a new sound, but it was pretty what they call minimal now, just bass, drums and guitar. But it was banned in America? It was banned because it referred to drugs. And instead of using it as an example of, you know, look, this guy is saying this is... It was like, to me, it was a, a rock and roll version of The Man with the Golden Arm. You know, it's like banning The Man with the Golden Arm because it showed Frank Sinatra suffering from drug drug withdrawal. And so that was September 69. Now, of course, we know that wasn't quite the whole truth, but he, he certainly did uh, try and come down. And I think he was over the main hump hump by, right. by that mm-hmm. time. Right. And he was also obviously very focused on uh, Yoko and her situation in respects to uh, Koyoko. Well, that wasn't that hadn't really happened yet. I mean, okay. both both Kyoko and Tony Cox were still in the scene. I mean, J- John and Yoko went to Toronto in '69, and they actually, you know, they all hung out together. Yeah, but they were. When did they go to Denmark? Because I mean, he was in Denmark during the uh, January 1970. I mean, mind sessions. With Yoko and and I, I believe Koyoko, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they were they yeah. were all together. Yeah. I mean, okay. I heard a lot of rumors about so your I'm, visit. So yeah, you have two. Can we get the truth about your visit to Denmark? Yeah, you, I've heard two rumors. I've just heard a new one today on the, from the Daily Express that I bought 70 acres of land here. <laughs> Every country I go to, 
the press seem to think I'm going to buy 70 acres of land. I've just been to Greece recently and I thought I was going to buy land there and Canada or wherever. I've got no other land except for some in England and Ireland. Uh, we came to see Kyoko, you know. I had to see Tony and Melinda, of course, but Kyoko was the axis point of coming, you know. And we've, been, we've had a nice seven days of peace. He was uh, obviously in a different frame of mind. If it wasn't drugs, it was love. The thing about that is we always talk about John and Yoko, John and Yoko, John and Yoko. Paul and Linda were really going through almost the same thing. I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm so sort of tired and everything. I apologize for that. She just turned to me. She said, it's allowed. I remember thinking, yes, mm. I like that. I'd probably take a guitar with me. I remember doing the song, The Two of Us. That was about that, you know, the two of us just heading out for nowhere. Mm. Totally free. That was a good feeling. During that period, she did sort of turn to me. She said, you know, I could make you a nice home. And that was like, wow, mm. what a great thing to say. No one had ever said that. Yeah, true. You see photographs of Linda in the Abbey Road sessions, you know, she's there. She's, she may not be always in the studio. Who knows? We only have those photographs that we have, but, but she's there. She's in the videos, you know, the let it be sessions. You'll see her off and on. Uh, for the longest time, it really was sort of, Oh, it's both Linda and Yoko's fault. The screenings of let it be at Beatle Fest in the seventies. The people would hiss, not just Yoko, but both of them. Yeah, and there's weird interviews from like the early sixties, where um, from the early seventies, sorry, where people were blaming Linda and saying, "Oh, she's ruined Paul, and she was never good for him." There was a weird vitriol for her that uh, obviously changed over over the years. It was really alien to me, actually. Well, the fans who were gathered outside right now seem to generally have an interpretation that it's his wife, it's Paul McCartney's wife, the evil one. They're calling her. All sorts of names. Yes, well, she's bound to be a scapegoat, isn't she? Because if they're girls with some sort of image of Paul as an available bachelor, which is difficult to eradicate, then they'll they'll see they'll see and see and speak about Linda. But they know very well because they know more about the Beatles than the Beatles do. And something which is kind of overlooked you know john likes to point out oh you know paul never liked yoko paul was looking over at yoko when he was singing get back john was exactly the same way with linda yeah well you had you know what 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 did paul say in the anthology he's like you know the wedding bells are breaking up the gang it was sort of that sort of dilemma going on Oh, absolutely. But still, I mean, granted, he was being egged on by Alan Klein, but through 72, 73, even when the McCartneys were fully into family mode and, and it started popping out the babies, John was like, oh, Paul's going to grow tired of her. She's just going to be his latest chick. Yeah, well, you know, uh, he had his own perspective. Obviously, that was incorrect. John was never going to forgive Linda for stealing his boyfriend, though. You know, that's the, that's the simple way to look at it, I always feel. Well, let me guess. You've been listening to the uh, Another Kind of Mind podcast. I just had them on for my show last, last night, actually. <laughs> Gee. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Not to be catty, but uh, that is one of their pet theories. 
Yeah, um, it's it's uh, it's it's definitely something they've 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 explored in the in the show. But even even if you don't want to use the word boyfriend, like you know, Paul was someone that John was like incredibly close with, and I guess he never saw his union with Yoko as something that would tear them up as a unit. But suddenly, when Paul gets his own version of uh, you know that intimate partner. John reacts really quite horribly to it. Uh, you, you know, you do hear some stories though of Paul being quite horrid to Yoko as well. So, again, as with all of these stories, it's a lot more grey and muddled than any of the books would really point out. Well, I think you look at Let It Be. You know, Paul, true to his own core, he always really tried to be the peacemaker to a certain extent. Right, right. And he certainly was the one that wanted to keep the band going and possibly even performing. And, I, and, the, and the, the thing is, like, there's, a, there's a, again, like, a, always only two answers. One is to fight it and fight her sure. and try and get the Beatles back to four people without Yoke and sort of ask Yoke to sit down at the board meetings. Mm. Or else the other meeting is to, the other thing is just to realise she's there, you know. And he's not going to sort of split with her just for our sakes. You know, and then and but not, then it's not even so much of an obstacle then, as long as we're not trying to surmount it. Mm. Now, while we're still trying to get over it, it's an obstacle. But it isn't really. It's not that bad, you know. But they want to stay together, those two, you know. So it's all right. Let the young lovers stay together, you know. But it it shouldn't be. Can't right. operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like it's like that. We're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike because. Work conditions aren't right, you know, but yeah. mm. But he he knows that, doesn't he? John knows that, yeah. sure. But, but does he talk about it at all? No, but he's, I mean, he's, see, we've done a lot of Beatles now. We've had a lot of Beatles, you know, and we've, you know, we've got a lot out of Beatles. So that it, I think John's saying now, obviously, it came to a push between Yoko and the Beatles. It's Yoko, yeah. Good stay. Oh, sure. But funny enough, the other day when we were talking, he said that he really did not want not to be a Beatle. He no, said he no. really looked forward not to, in other words, he didn't want that screwed up. Mm. Yeah, but it's a difficult one, that, you know. It was George who who got really upset at Yoko you know, for eating one of his digestive biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anyone's gonna gonna want to work with someone who's just trying to keep you going as a band. Like, especially if you don't want to be in said band, and the longer Paul keeps doing that, the more annoying it's gonna get, and it's gonna boil over at some point. And it does. Yep. So, so they got to that second meeting, the meeting we know about at the end of September, where you know John came up and said, "That's it. I'm done. I want a divorce." And almost immediately after that, Paul left off to Scotland. Right. He he was uh, he be- became secluded. Right. That's when he was. Um, uh, what the Paul is dead hoax started to appear. Right around that time. Exactly. Yeah. And well, I mean that yeah. <laughs> that was why it was it, uh, sort of allowed to progress as far as it yeah. did was because he was. Out of sight, out of mind. Right. And you had the Life magazine cover with him finally, like, I think that was in late 69, possibly, November 69. November 7th was when the Life magazine cover was. Right, right. So, you know, the rumors of, of his death were greatly exaggerated. 
And he straight up said that he's not going to record with the Beatles again in that interview, but that doesn't trigger the breakup announcement for some reason. Well, so what he said in Life magazine was he said, you know, quote, the Beatles thing is over. It wasn't completely, oh, we're we're not we're never going to record, but it's it's the Beatles as they were as an entity had ended. Right. Well, that's a pretty bold statement though in itself. At a, at that time. And it's also interesting to to look at, you know, the the five stages of depression. Paul <laughs> seems to have primarily gone through uh depression and that was you know he likes to talk about that's really what was going on during this whole period in scotland and as a result his seclusion versus john john was out and about you know live piece in toronto and recording with plastic ono band just the opposite exactly cold turkey yeah (laughs) was recorded and came out you know in in a week's time this whole period when you compare it to McCartney in, say, 67 in India, writing songs for the White Album, this is a very fallow period for his songwriting. He writes like five or six tracks up in Scotland and there are all these quite small little ditty affairs. And, you know, we hear all these stories. He's drinking too much, he's smoking too much, he's staying in bed all day. Um, he only really touches on it in the lyrics of um, some of the, some of the songs he writes uh, during during that time, but I'm sure we'll get to that shortly. Uh, exactly, but I mean he he does come out of it pretty quickly, and he seems to be really really the first to absolutely accept. Okay, this the Beatles thing really is over. I'm I've got to start my solo career for real now. Of course, John and George had both put out uh, the experimental albums, and and John was sort of creeping in the direction of a solo career. But it's Paul who really just grabbed the reins, and once Linda had pulled him out of this uh, period of depression, yeah, the the McCartney kicked in there. But it's, it's interesting, though, he was still recording most of the stuff like McCartney won. It's, it's all him, right? He's playing all the, all the instruments. Un- unlike the other Beatles, he's not teaming up with other of his peers, you know? I, I, I found that quite interesting. Now, what do you think was kind of going through Paul's mind? I mean, do you think he had originally wanted to go out and uh, put out this pop album? Or was, do you think he was just sort of following in the John and George tradition? It's like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to write some, some tunes that aren't quite finished, but they're, they're more experimental. They're a little bit odd. And, you know, it'll just be something that I put out, not so much to top the charts, until he just said, okay, you know, screw it. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think he came to the realization that this, okay, you know, Beatles are over. Let's let me just go ahead and move forward here, and let me be the one to say we divorced in public. Yeah, it's true. This whole album can, in a sort of cynical mindset, be seen as just McCartney trying to take the reins of his own career and kind of control the Beatle narrative. He he wanted to get McCartney out before Let It Be. That obviously never happened. He wanted to get it out before Sentimental Journey. That never happened. So he must have had it completed for quite a while. Though the transition from, you know, I've got a few songs like Junk and Teddy Boy that I've had lying around for a while to I've started writing some, some new songs to, oh, I'm going to release an album now. 
is quite sudden, really. It's it's a bit like you know the evolution of the human brain doubling in like two million years. You know, it's like whoa, okay, Paul's actually going to do this fully now because he's not like George, where he's got a huge backlog of songs. So clearly, coming out of his depression, he was very much motivated to produce something quickly and just get it out there, almost just to release something to exercise the demons to prove he can do a solo album so he can kind of focus and do a much better more refined album the next year which he does with ram obviously so i did queen of glory some of those little things she kind of right off the wall and then as i say a few more normal things crept in and it became an album You know, really, even through the Morgan Studios stuff, when he's looking looking at recording, uh, you know, Karina Core and Glasses and, uh, you know, Junk is, I guess, really the first absolutely serious attempt at a, at a pop song for the McCartney album. Yeah. So now maybe I'm amazed. Uh, was that the Let It Be Sessions when he started writing that? That is the more pop tune on that album. Of I think the chord the chord changes were played during Let It Be. There, there's no version which is recognizably. Maybe I'm amazed anywhere okay. in the the get back sessions. Although mm. you know, there's a couple points where he's just sort of playing around, and it's like, yeah, that sounds kind of like what he would eventually do yeah. for Maybe I'm yeah. Amazed. Okay. Maybe I'm Amazed was a song for Linda, and it was a song about my feelings on being in love with my wife um, and feeling very good about it. But at the same time, being a bloke, thinking instead of Baby, I'm amazed. There was a sort of maybe I'm amazed. There's a little kind of disclaimer in there, you know. Um, but it basically is just a love song. Maybe I'm amazed at the way uh, you hung me on a line, you pulled me out of time. They're just different ways to express different sides of what I was feeling. I expected more out of McCartney one personally when that was released, but it, I think as Sam had just mentioned, you know, he he put the stuff together. He wanted to get something out. I mean, it was really only when he went into Abbey Road uh, in February and March of 1970 that he went full bore towards, okay, I'm gonna do at least half of a serious. Paul McCartney record. That's where you get every night, and maybe I'm amazed, and basically the better produced half of McCartney. Right, right. No, absolutely. And those are all the songs that we still listen to today. You know, I don't think there's many people going, oh, I definitely want to add Valentine Day to my playlist.
I don't know. I like sing along junk, you know. The instrumental is kind of nice. Sing along junk is fun in the way that Give Ireland Back to the Irish instrumental is fun. But yeah, you know, um, every night is a little bit deeper, though. It's one of the few kind of allusions McCartney gives to the Beatles in this time. Um, you know, he, he's going to be a lot more direct the next year with Ram and songs like, you know, Too Many People and Three Legs and stuff like that. But we do get to see, you know, he's very unsure of himself after the after the collapse of this band. And I guess the whole core theme of McCartney, I guess, is that Linda has been there that year to be his rock. She's inspired him to to start recording it again. And this whole album is just him kind of being indebted to her. And the fact that it does uh, kind of crescendo with Maybe I'm Amazed uh, is just a, a huge testament to his love to her. So, yeah. Even though it was really been a very heavy, difficult period, meeting Linda and starting a family, it was the escape. I could see that there was life out there, you know, because Christ, I've worked like a devil with the Beatles for all those years. And it didn't appear like there was going to be any reward. It didn't appear like there was going to be any happiness at the end of it. So suddenly I found it and grabbed it. And the other thing that would come out of the McCartney sessions is the uh, infamous self-interview. Peter Brown said, you're putting a record out, so you'll need to do publicity. Well, there was no way I could sit around and do a press conference, but I recognised the need for some sort of publicity. So I said, I'll tell you what, why don't you do some questions for me, and I'll do a Q&A. And then you can use that, make that into a press release, and I'll just do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that. That's a read into itself, you know, and and his dilemmas he was going through, and his declaration of independence. I guess it's a great psychological document uh, to see what questions Paul would like to have himself be asked. Although I know, I know he had a little a little bit of help with the uh, composition of it as well. Now, the thing was with the Beatles, we weren't telling anyone. So we were all keeping strong, but I was so pissed with that idea. I thought the Beatles have always been about honesty. And here we are, not telling anyone, but we've broken up. Believe me, I went back, I went back, and George went back, we all went back, so I said, hey, should we not break up? But it was like, no, we're breaking up. And it's a good feeling. So it was like, okay, once it's that final, when the question came up, I sort of said, uh, no, we're not reforming. And I dropped the truth into that little interview. And he knew he could, in his head, he said. It comes across to me as this horrendously arrogant kind of train crash media piece. I don't think he comes across very good in it at all. And I think he kind of missells the album as well. I think he should have under undersold it a little more, like he did with Wildlife with the Wings a, a few years later. Yeah, another another very strange uh, media move from Paul this year. Lower the expectations, otherwise we were expecting more out of the album. But despite the Life magazine quote, which we had mentioned a while back, this was the one that everyone picked up as <laughs> the Beatles have broken up. 
and it was Paul has split up the Beatles. Now, of course, it didn't help that he was actually taking the other three to court at the time. <laughs> True. So, yeah, with the whole Paul quits the Beatles uh, story, uh, went out in the Daily Mirror, April uh, 10th in 70. But there's so many ways to kind of interpret that move in itself. You know, is, again, it's him controlling the narrative and the flow of information. Uh, is it him just trying to hurt John specifically? Because John was the one who originally announced the divorce privately, but then he had to suppress that so that client could get a better contract. Then there's the whole Paul advertising his new album angle because it would come out on the 17th of April, literally a week later. How do we interpret this move? I don't think Paul was being quite as self-serving as everyone wants to make him out to be. You know, he was certainly trying to get across his feelings, but he was just really expressing what, at least to him, had become something obvious. We were talking about the stages of grief. He had gone through them. He had hit acceptance. And really, I don't think John had quite hit acceptance, even though he's the one who said he wanted a divorce. It's so it, it's so strange with Paul and John's relationship because, you know, they're, they're again, to use like a, a kind of relationship ex, uh, expression, but they, they, they do go back and forth like an old married couple. And how much of it is genuine hurt? How much is, of it is just lashing out? We'll, we'll never know because... You know, we only get to see one percent of this whole story through what the Beatles tell us and allow us to know. So all of this is purely conjecture, I guess. But so he rang me up on that day and said, "I'm doing what you and York are doing and putting out an album, and I'm leaving the group too." He said. I said, "Good." You know, I was a little, you know, feeling a little strange because he was saying it this time. You know, although it was a year later, and I said, "Well, I said good," you know, because he was the one that wanted the Beatles most. You know. Even as a, a Paul podcaster, I've always I've, I've always been less willing to give Paul the benefit of the doubt in situations like this because John's always the one that's described as the you know who's the manoeuvring swine you know, and yet Paul throughout the rest of his career is going to be known as Mister PR the press man, and I you know I think we're seeing it right here. It's an interesting question, and there's actually really a. a fabulous documentary someone could make about this period in time you know post abbey road pre-imagine yeah absolutely but uh in regards to that yeah absolutely he was mr pr um having a um a documentary just on this period of time i think would be very enlightful well particularly given the fact that there is plenty of footage from the era which could make for interesting viewing now the small gathering on Savile Row is only the beginning. The event is so momentous that historians may one day view it as a landmark in the decline of the British Empire. The Beatles are breaking up. It would be a hardcore documentary. It wouldn't be something like uh, Let It Be or Get Back. They could sit yeah, in theaters yeah. and people would watch, but... I'd like to see it. No, give us a, t uh, a Ken Burns ten-part docu uh, documentary covering all of 1970. Like, like in in doing the research just for this year alone, like it's 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 clear that this is just as drama-filled and uh, intriguing as any of the years that the Beatles were still active and together. You know. So also during this period, as you'd mentioned before, Ringo 
had gone into the studio and Ringo really didn't know what was to become of him without the Beatles. Well, it's, it's the first solo album by me, but John has had a lot of solo albums and, and records out. But I um, first of all thought, well, I'd like to do an album of one's songs I've written, but I take so long to write them that I would never have finished it, you know, because <laughs> I write about one a year. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I went through a lot of these songs and picked out most of them of sort of great memories from a certain auntie or my dad or, you know, all certain yeah. people, you know, there's a, it's a it's like a it's a sentimental journey. That's what it is. Yeah. Okay, dog. Yeah. All we know that you know they were going to put him in the movies, <laughs> and you know, his acting career was starting to take off. Um, I would imagine that was his consensus at the time. Little did we know. Well, but he also, you know, he clearly didn't want to give up the recording career because no. he went in yeah. and uh, started recording the classics and as is frequently yeah. pointed out you know Ringo was the first to really do an American songbook type of album before it became something that everybody else did even before Harry Nilsson who's the one who really gets credit for it wasn't he the first solo Beatle to have a hit top 10 hit it don't come easy right and, and that's that's a good place to end this show you know what do we kind of think was going on with it don't come easy the George and Ringo and George Martin got together during the Sentimental Journey sessions and started recording this and Let It Be had just been finished. I don't think it had been released yet, right? Yeah, Let It Be was released in, I believe, May of 70, a month after, yeah. So, so George Ringo and George Martin were together in the studio performing on this song that uh, George Harrison had written.
as I mentioned in email, you know, were they kind of thinking that this might be another Beatles number? You know, there are as many Beatles on it as there were on Ballad of John and Yoko. True, true. Well, you never know. It's got, yeah, it's, it's, it's got as many Beatles writing on it as Octopus's Garden had as well. I mean, I've always seen George's secret writing credits on these Ringo songs, just a, like a, a bit of a way just to give him a little bit more cash, I guess, just so the money all goes to Ringo. And that's just all part of that good guy, George, attitude that we see time and time again. Ringo was just really trying to figure things out. And, and true to Ringo's personality, he wasn't so much going through stages of grief as just like, okay, it's time to move on. It's, it's really the same thing that he'd been doing ever since he was in hospital, you know, through Roy Storm, through joining the Beatles. Right, right. He had quite a few challenges there. But... um He's the one Beatle that came through all this. Obviously, uh, he was shining. He was a shining star in this early, early uh, Beatle breakup situation. And to go from the guy who barely writes any songs and is just considered the drummer and he's the kind of the butt of all of the jokes, for him to be able to, A, realize that he can't just do what all the other guys are doing and to implement another plan that was so successful and effective you know more credit to him all right great so i think we're uh, we're about out of time for this show lonnie and i have a special program next week uh, for the week of john's birthday but we'll be back with part two of this in two weeks time mighty fine folks uh, be safe out there thanks sam for joining us and you'll be back with us in a couple weeks yeah, uh, th- thanks. Uh, thanks to both of you. Um, thanks for having me on the show. I've, I've, I'm glad I could be, you know, finally return the favor and add to your vast catalog of of uh, podcasts. Um, I've been binging all, all 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 of your shows since the last time we uh, we spoke on Paul or Nothing, and like, you know, what other show would spend a whole month going through the Flaming Pie Archive Edition? No one. <laughs> no, you know, I love it. It's it's absolutely killer. So. Thanks for having me on, and I can't wait to come back. Well, we appreciate you, Sam. All right. We'll, we'll be back in a couple – well, we'll be back next week. Uh, our special guest is going to be David Spindell, who was the uh, photographer on one of John's last photo sessions at the Hit Factory in New York City in November of 1980. And then we'll be back with Sam the week after. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. I told Ray Conley, so there's a lot of people knew I'd left, but I was a fool not to do it, you know. Not to do what Paul did, which is use it to sell a record. Well, I wasn't angry, I was just fish, you know. I mean, he, he's a good PR man, Paul. I mean, he, he's about the best in the world, probably. You know? He really does a job. I was just, I wasn't angry in that way. I was, 
we were all hurt that he didn't tell us that what he was going to do but he I think he claims that he didn't mean that to happen but that's bullshit he called me in the afternoon of that day and said I'm doing what you and Yoko were doing last year last year I said good you know because the, the, the time last year they were all looking at us too as if we were strange trying to make a life together and doing other things than being fab fat myths so he rang me up that day and said I'm doing what you and Yoko are doing and putting on armor and I'm leaving the group too he said I tell you one thing there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Yeah.